Welcome again to season two of the Ethics Lab podcast. This is episode two. We are continuing our discussion with the workshop for populism and the recovery of intellectual virtues. I'm Dr. George Sakaritis, and I'm here with Dr. Gregory Peterson and special guest, Dr. Kirk Hawkins, who is one of the plenary speakers for the workshop this week. How are you doing, Kirk? I'm doing great, George. It's good to be here. That's excellent. I think we are in for a treat today, Greg. What do you think? Absolutely. We've, we've had a wonderful three days. Dr. Hawkins gave a very nice talk to our community, talking about the ins and outs of populism and uh, what it might mean for us, and provided not only an excellent academic overview, but also a nice account of how we should think about this in a kind of first-person way. So we're very excited to to have him here, and we are uh, glad that he has decided to participate in our podcast tonight. So the uh, first question uh, goes to George, so we'll let him ask that. Feels very official, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and we should mention, I think, that Kirk is a the founder, I think, and one of the lead people with Team Populism which maybe he can talk about in a little bit, but let's pitch him the first question and he can go and wow us with his populist knowledge. Maybe I shouldn't have said it that way. Okay. Well, Kirk, how did you first become interested in populism as a political phenomenon? So there's actually a good story there. I was in graduate school uh, doing my dissertation research in Venezuela, and I wasn't in Venezuela studying populism, at least not at first, but I was there because I, uh, as, a, as a political science student, I, I was studying political organization. So things like social movements and interest groups and political parties. Specifically, my dissertation was focused on the breakdown of political party systems. And Venezuela in 1999 was a great place to study that because their old party system consisting of two main governing parties had had broken down, if you will. They had really failed uh, in the face of this new insurgent movement from uh, Hugo Chavez. And so I went there to study the old parties. I spent almost four months every day interviewing leaders of the traditional parties and thinking all the time, well, I'm going to study how they work, how they're organized, how that was dysfunctional, why that led to their decline. And really was just focusing on that the entire time. And meanwhile, Hugo Chavez is in his first year of office. There's a constitutional convention going on that's going to reshape the country's government. And I was actually paying almost no attention to that. But at the end of the four months, after I was really pretty tired of talking to these old politicians kind of hearing the same story over and over again. And the thought just occurred to me, you know, no one's studying this uh, Hugo Chavez guy and this new thing that's going on. Maybe I should try to do that. Yeah, so I thought I'm going to go interview them and apply some of my uh, skills as a budding scholar in political organization just to try to see how his party or movement was organized. So I really had a limited vision of what I was going to do, but I was also pretty naive about this because I just found out where their headquarters was. It was in the penthouse of some office building downtown. And so I just took the elevator up, got up to the gate, 
rapped on the outside of that gate until you know the secretary came out to talk to me and said, well, you know, can I come in and just find out about you guys? Here I am, an American scholar and really interested in you. What, can, can I just come in and talk? And they said, sure, come on in. <laughs> so it was, again, in retrospect, of course, after what happened in Venezuela in subsequent years, uh, you know, in 2002, there was an attempted coup against Chavez and a lot of people in his movement really closed up. They didn't want to talk to uh, uh, certainly to American scholars like myself, and there was a lot more suspicion. But at the time, it was really easy to get in. And I, I went in thinking I would just describe the organization and actually interview then. I ended up interviewing over that week uh, a couple dozen people, many of whom were very high up in the government, who at the time were kind of new and fresh and young and really excited to have somebody who wanted to listen to them. So anyway, the short of it is, after collecting a lot of information, I, I realized that the story about the organization, although it was one I could tell and I tried to do, wrote it up in a paper, what was far more interesting was that this thing just seemed really crazy. They seemed, they seemed to me crazy and radical and completely different from the leaders in these other parties. So I knew there was something there. There was a bigger story to be told. And at first, by the way, I had no idea what it was about. I was trying to put my finger on what made them different and couldn't do it. Uh, my training was in an area of political science that we call uh, rational choice institutionalism, so drawing heavily from theories of economics. And that really, of course, it wasn't equipped to help me understand it. And what happened, I, fortunately, a, a friend of mine, a scholar, had heard that I had learned something about this party. He invited me to come give a paper at a conference. But he said, you know, I, I want you to come and write your paper on whether or not you think Chavez is a populist. And I said, what's that? And he said, well, you, here's a few things you can read that'll tell you, that'll tell you about it. And I read one thing and said, you know, that doesn't feel right. I, that populism work doesn't, that, that, that word doesn't stick. And I read another thing and said, nah, this really isn't doing it for me. And then I read this third one that was written by this, I don't know, sort of like a postmodernist scholar or something, someone who dealt with radical cultural interpretivism. And I read this and I said, this is it. This describes Chavez exactly. And it was just appalling to me because I thought this man comes from an intellectual tradition that's very much at odds with what I do and what I study. But he had got it right. So now I knew, oh, populism. Let's see if we can figure that out. So it, it kind of went on from there. Uh, you describe your approach to populism as an ideational approach to populism. So you mentioned a little bit about this issue of trying to understand what populism is. Uh, so could you just tell us what this ideational approach is and, and why it's significant for your work? Sure. There are a couple ways of understanding that word. Um, the first thing you need to know, there's, there's sort of a, I don't know, maybe it's an open secret about the word, but it, the word we picked it for political reasons, because I had a way of talking about populism. I like to call it a discourse or a discursive frame. But a lot of other people working on populism like to call it a thin-centered ideology. And the fact is, we, once we all met each other, we realized we were talking about the same thing. I mean, the labels were different, but the content of our concept was was identical. Uh, but now we had this problem because we didn't want to let go of our labels. And so we, we picked this as a compromise. We said, well, let's just say we're all doing an ideational approach. Good. And so we've settled on that. And Mixing is a lot easier because when you're writing this up in an article or in a book, you get tired of having to say populism, 
a discourse or thin-centered ideology, and now you can just say populism understood ideationally. Yeah. Well, anyway, the, there's, of course, some, some content there, and I, that's what I hear you asking me about. And what we call it ideational to, of course, to distinguish this, the particular way we have of defining it. I call it particular. It's, I think it's increasingly common and accepted as a really helpful way of seeing it. Essentially, what it does is it says populism is mostly about a set of ideas and these ideas are distinct from the issue positions that we often associate with populists that we're most familiar with. So it's not about your radical right-wing positions, about you know immigration. It's not about radical left-wing positions, about how to run the economy. It's something else. But it is a, a set of ideas, just a different kind. And specifically, we say that populism is a kind of a, there you go, discourse or thin-centered ideology in which we see and talk about pop or talk about politics as if it were a kind of cosmic struggle between the will of the common people and an evil conspiring elite. That's it. So if you, if you talk about and think about politics that way, as opposed to, say, a more pluralistic vision, where you see differences of opinion as natural, where you don't like to demonize your opponents. If it's this, this way that I've described, this what's sometimes called a Manichaean way of seeing things because of how you see good and a knowing agential evil there, then we say, well, that's populism. That's it. So it doesn't matter the issue position. In fact, you can combine any issue position, any set of issues. You can frame them in populist terms or not. So we'll often get the question, you know, is this a populist issue? Is this a populist position that this politician is taking? And we say there is no such thing as a populist policy. What matters, what makes something populist is not, you know, are you going to raise the minimum wage or do you want to exclude immigrants? But how do you sell it? How do you frame it? And if you see it as part of this kind of cosmic struggle. I should mention, obviously, there are some other definitions. And so using the label helps us distinguish or set it apart from from those other ways of seeing populism. And I mentioned a couple of those now talking about, you know, you could define it in terms of issues. Uh, another common approach is to see populism as associated with a certain kind of organizational strategy. And usually they associate it with charismatic um, movements led by charismatic outsiders. And we don't deny that any of those perspectives, uh, you know, that they don't have relevance for specific instances of populism. But the heart of it all, what unites anything that we call populist, is this set of ideas, seeing things as the people versus the elite. That's really the heart of it. And so I, I like that label. I think it does help. I mean, it's a compromised term, as I suggested, but it does try to point to the uniqueness of this definition that just focuses on a, a minimal a minimal set of ideas that we think unites uh, all of these populist phenomena. So maybe just to make that a little bit more concrete, what might be two uh, countries that currently have populist leaders, and how would we you know, know that they were populist leaders? Greg, thanks for that question. Yeah, and I, I think, by the way, that it, it sounds pretty abstract, but what I, what I kind of wish we could do on this podcast is just play a segment from a speech, for example. We do, so we, we take this definition and uh, it's not just a kind of intellectual exercise. We want to see, oh, well, can we measure this? And so 
we, we have measured it, I mean, not just me, but a lot of other scholars, both at the level of political elites, usually by using a textual analysis of things like a speech or a party platform. Uh, also at the level of the, the citizens, the mass level, uh, where we would do things like uh, you know, public opinion polls, a survey where we would measure populist attitudes. So it's, it's precise enough to be able to get at that. Anyway, to, to answer your question, some great examples would be, I, I mean, this isn't such a good example now. Hugo Chavez has been, unfortunately, passed away several years ago. And so and, and some of your listeners might not be as familiar with him now, but he, he stands out still uh, for many in Latin America as a kind of quintessential populist. And you can see this if, again, if you have the chance to listen to any of his old speeches where he, he would bring up these themes and he would, he would portray his enemies, his, well, his opponents as enemies, and use very strong language to, to demonize them and, and then to, to refer to the good as not as, you know, the, the, the nation or the state of Venezuela, but it's ultimately the people, the people. And he'll celebrate the Bolivarian people of Venezuela as the good out there. And, and in fact, celebrate himself as a part of that, to say, you know, we, the, the Bolivarian people of Venezuela. So that's, Chavez is a good example of that, although a little, a little, now a little dated. A current one here is in our own country. We can talk about Donald Trump, and he's someone we've had the chance to study now. For me, a little unusual. My training is as a Latin Americanist, and many of my colleagues are in Europe, but Obviously, since 2016, things have changed a little here at home, and I've been given this opportunity to apply my skills to something a little closer. Anyway, Trump is another pretty good example of this. He's not consistent about it in his speaking. We've found, when we've analyzed his speeches, that he actually tends to be more consistently populist in speeches that are written by others, like Steve Bannon or Stephen Miller. And when Trump himself speaks... He doesn't always celebrate the virtues of the people quite so much. But uh, certainly hear this when Trump talks about you know, draining the swamp, uh, referring to Washington, the establishment, and uh, calling them corrupt. And when he is being you know, a little better coached by his speechwriters, he will talk about, uh, you, know, you, the American people, are going to be the ones to solve this, to reclaim the system, and to make America great again. Okay, actually, I'm going to... I think I'm going to go with the short version of this question. But what do you th- do you think populism is good or bad for democracy? And and you can take that in whatever direction you you feel is appropriate, but I think our listeners might be interested in that. Yeah, so that question can go two directions because you could think of populism as you know what are its effects on democracy? You could also, though, say, well, in what ways does populism sort of sprout from some maybe fundamental defects of democracy? And I think they're both important. So it has a pretty consistent impact on what we call liberal democracy. So this is a distinction that political scientists like to make between democracy understood just as popular sovereignty and a system in which we also have these checks on the tyranny of the majority embodied in things like uh, civil liberties or the checks and balances that we have with separation of powers between the branches of government. And what a populist does, so I, I said earlier, oh, there's no such thing as a populist policy. And I, I, that's still true. We would think about policies, you know, if they're framed in populist ways. But there are some pretty consistent consequences populists have for 
democracy, liberal democracy. So because they celebrate the will of the common people as this kind of unified thing out there, they're really not so concerned about the competitive function of elections. Because, right, there's just one right way of doing things. And so what we need to do is have an election to let the people express that one right way. And so it gets to be really easy to chisel away at the protections for electoral fairness. We see this in a lot of countries. Another thing that happens, of course, if you think that your enemy is really diabolical, an evil elite that's bent on destroying the people and has subverted the system, and that enemy is a minority, then you say, well, maybe I need to restrict the, the rights of that minority and things like freedom of the press. And so you feel now really willing to do this because you see that group as outside the people and not deserving those protections. So those civil liberties get rolled back. And often because uh, successful populist movements come to power led by a charismatic leader, we see that it's really easy to justify concentrating powers in the hands of the chief executive. So these are things, we see hints of these today now in the United States with Trump's attacks on the, on the media, calling them you know, fake news. Uh, we also see this with you know, things happening, say, to the Department of Justice and concerns about their objectivity and their independence. And we see, uh, frankly, that, you know, a lot of calls uh, among uh, his uh, most ardent supporters, uh, this hope or desire that more power can be placed in the hands of Trump and that we don't need to worry as much about you know, a Congress in that process, or maybe you know, let Trump run indefinitely, right? We hear whispers of that. So those, those effects seem to be pretty consistent. And in fact, most cases of rollback, democratic rollback that we see today are happening in countries that have populist leaders. So it's a very serious thing to, to worry about. I should emphasize it's something that seems to kind of depend on the degree of populism. So the worst uh, effects are felt when we have a highly populist leader. And on the other hand, we have a lot of leaders that are just kind of moderately populist. We don't see them exercising these same extremely negative consequences. So you always have to judge and say, well, in my country, do I think that this populist is really going to end up quite that bad? But it, it does seem to be a consistent effect, whether these are populists of the left or the right. But the flip side of this is whether you know, populism somehow reflects a problem in democracy. And we think it, it does uh, in the sense that, you know, sometimes democracies don't work really well, perfectly well, at listening to everybody. It's easy for the voices of minorities and sometimes majorities to get ignored even when uh, things work pretty well. You know, sometimes well-intentioned politicians feel constrained to uh, eliminate policy options, and in the process, they may, they may just ignore the impact that those policies have on a segment of their constituents. We see this uh, you know, in, in America today and across a lot of Europe, where you know, a lot of people are affected negatively by economic globalization, for example. And that doesn't mean that, you know, that globalization is bad per se, but you know, it leaves some people behind, and you need to think about policies that can address their problems, that provide some kind of remediation. And in the West, you know, we, we've been really pretty bad at that. And so in that sense, populism is kind of arising as a critique of democracy. And in some ways that critique is, is it's speaking the language of liberal democracy. It's saying we as citizens are deserving the same protection before the law as other citizens. And yet somehow the law is being 
is being handled in a way that systematically ignores us, puts us at a disadvantage. And that's, that's a real violation of democratic norms. So you know, maybe that doesn't have to happen in a democracy, but it does. And populism then becomes kind of a warning sign and telling you, hey, something wasn't working right here. And you can, you can worry about the populist and the consequences they're going to have on your democracy. But you also need to think about what the situation is that is the, the basis of their complaint. Because there's usually a, a complaint there that has kind of at its heart a, a core of legitimacy that we really need to think about and take seriously. Thank you so much, Kirk. So last uh, pa- podcast, we introduced this new question for the season. So we're just calling it the quirky question. So the, the quirky question for Kirk is what is the most remote place you've ever been to? To be perfectly honest, I, I don't think I've been in places that remote. Yeah, so I've, I, I, I'm a Latin Americanist. I have been a number of places in Latin America, in, in Central and South America. I've also had opportunities now to travel elsewhere and work with my colleagues going to uh, you know, Europe. But you think, wow, those, those really don't feel that far away. And I, I think though maybe the most remote place I've ever felt I was in was not as a, a scholar, but earlier. So in, in college, so I, I teach at Brigham Young University and um, I, uh, it's, it, the university is owned by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I, I'm a member of that uh, church and did a couple of years of missionary service like uh, many of our members do. So I, I served in Chile. Uh, so Chile, now it is, in fact, one of the most physically remote places that I've been to. It takes a little while to get there. You're going to have an overnight flight. But while I was there during those two years, I served in a lot of small towns. And in some of these places, you really felt also sort of distant even maybe a little bit from civilization. And then one night, I remember, I was walking out there. We'd finished our work for the day, walking back to our apartment and looking up and seeing the Southern Cross in this brilliant dark sky and thinking, I am not at home anymore. And it's, it's actually, it's, it's this kind of sublime moment. It was a, it's a happy memory, but I realized that, yeah, I'm, I'm a little remote and I, I could see it in the sky. I'm impressed with where these quirky questions are going so far this season. So you guys are setting a high bar here. I think I want to give you, like, could you give us the one-minute pitch on team populism? I think it'd be good for our listeners to hear exactly what it's about. But, like, give me, me like, the one-minute overview. I'm happy to do that. Team populism is a cross-regional network of scholars who want to study the causes and consequences of populism more scientifically. We come together because we know that it lets us collaborate and produce more data and better data and better ideas. Perfect. And I think that's a great way to end. Um, Greg, you better put away that sea cucumber. We'll have to eat that next time because we are out of time for today. Uh, If you'd like to follow us on Facebook, that's backslash South Dakota State University Ethics Lab, or you can follow us on Twitter what is it? Oh, yeah. At SDSU Ethics Lab. Pretty straightforward. I shouldn't have to look that up. 
Okay, and uh, thank you so much for being here, Kirk, and um, Heather also. And it's just been a great week. We'll be glowing about this into the future as we put together our volume. And uh, we'll leave the listeners with just a goodbye and just a little encouragement to stay a little more ethical. We'll see you later.